0: Thanks, everyone, for joining on our first solo recording of The Curbsiders. Unfortunately, we started off with a little bit of a recording hiccup, and you may hear some typing in my background audio. We apologize and want to ensure, listeners, that our episodes in the future will have the same high-quality production as The Curbsiders episodes that you know and love. For this episode, and honestly, future episodes, feel free to ignore my audio and just focus on the incredible pearls brought to you by our guest, Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out ce.bcu.health.org/cribsiders for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment,
1: education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host.
0: Welcome to the first ever solo episode of the Cribs Ciders Pediatric Podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and weight-based dosings of fun.
2: I'm Jess Kelly. On tonight's episode, we discuss bronchiolitis with our guest, Dr. Brian Alverson, Director of the Division of Hospital Medicine at Hasbro Children's Hospital. Dr. Alverson has served on the American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline Panel on the Diagnosis, Management, and Prevention of Bronchiolitis. He is the recipient of numerous awards for teaching at Brown University. My co-hosts for this episode are Justin Burke and Chris Chu. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Alverson, who teaches us why all you need is a history and physical exam to diagnose bronchiolitis, how high-flow nasal cannula actually works, and the real cost of using bronchodilators and bronchiolitis. So without further ado, let's get to it.
0: Okay. So let's go ahead and get started. So Dr. Alverson, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, we'd like to start with some rapid fire questions just to get you know, uh, get to know you a little bit better. And do you mind giving us a one-liner to describe yourself? Um, what, 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 who is Brian Alverson?
1: Sure. I'm uh, the head of the pediatric hospitals program at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. And I also run the pediatrics clerkship at Brown University. Um, I'm an avid violinist as well. Do lots of different things.
0: Nice. Violence. You recently were in a production. Tell me about the recent event you were a part of that was related to Beethoven and COVID.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. So we did this really, I thought, uh, fun and innovative look at Beethoven's life and his illnesses. And then we, over time, looked at his string quartets. Uh, And then I had this amazing string quartet called Brooklyn Rider, who came onto the program and broke down one of his very late quartets, uh, the slow movement of his Opus 132 quartet. And they broke it down into pieces and we were able to break it down and explain how it related to illness and recovery. And then they performed the piece at the end. It was a lot of fun. A lot of people went. It was about uh, maybe 800 people have seen it so far. So it was a lot of fun.
0: Holy cow, wow, nice. Chris, you wanna do a question?
3: Yeah. Uh, So my question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Oh yeah,
1: so, oh my goodness out of so many to choose from. Um, but uh, probably my favorite failure, uh, it didn't end up being a failure, but it could have been. Um, I had a patient who was 15 years old and came into the hospital um, post tonsillectomy about it a week out, and he was bleeding and he was spitting up a little blood. And I gave him one of those leader big suction canisters. I said, hang on to this and, and spit into it. I'm going to go call the ENT. And the NT went, um, it was on the phone because I was at a community house. We said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And I walked back in and the leader canister was completely full of blood. And that was after about two minutes. And I said, yeah, so in five minutes, he's dead. Um, so that was really terrifying. And I immediately did rapid sequence innovation and then discovered I couldn't see anything. And it was a motor of moment of complete and utter terror. A brilliant nurse next to me thought of, applying topical thrombin to his tonsillar pillars and it gave me the brief second to get that ET tube in it was still a lucky stab and if i hadn't made that innovation i'm i'm quite confident he would have died and so the lesson for me was be ready for what you need to do even if it's an emergency it was uh, i learned a lot from that experience
0: that is like my worst nightmare <laughs> in a pediatric hospitalist i uh, can't even imagine the the thought process going through your head in that situation.
1: Yep. (laughs) It's nuts. Yes, it was nuts.
0: One of my favorite questions to ask uh, guests is about advice. Can you tell us some of the best advice you've ever received as either as a learner or as an educator or at some point in your career, a piece of advice that you think is worth sharing?
1: You know, I think we all have these mentors out there who seemed to us as like bigger characters than God. And the one for me was this guy, Steve Ludwig. Uh, He was my residency director and one of the fathers of pediatric emergency medicine. And uh, at the time when I finished my chief resident year, he gave me a gift, which is right next to me on my desk right now, which was uh, just a box for pens. And on it, he said, this is the best life advice I can give you. And it was a quote from, of all things, the folk singer, James Taylor. And the statement was, the secret of life is enjoying the passage of time. And at first, I thought it was sort of a cheesy quote, and I like James Taylor, but I'm not a huge fan. And I was like, okay, that's my pen box. But it was maybe a year or two later, I was looking at that, and I realized the profound importance of enjoying your job as you're doing it, as opposed to enjoying what you're going to end up being. And that advice ended up being, for me, sort of a life mantra and a sage wisdom is that I really have to enjoy what I'm doing as I do it, as opposed to always think, well, one day I'll get there. And uh, that's really helped me uh, get through some of the more difficult times in my career. Wow. Good advice.
0: I love that. I, I, especially, I think, for, for people like in residence. Uh, when I was a resident, those were things that I needed to hear. And it was trying to make the most of those situations and not just looking towards the light at the end of the tunnel, but taking every day for, for what it was and, and trying to enjoy it. And, uh, and it's good advice. I like
3: it. Do we All have right. anything else, Justin? Are we just going right into the cases now?
0: I, I say let's go right into it. You know, let's, let's get to the, the meat of things. And we got a lot of, to talk about. Bronchiolitis is a big topic. Uh, I think let's just do it. What do you think, Chris?
3: I think that sounds great.
0: All right. Uh, do it. <laughs> oh, perfect. All right. So, um, Brian, we like to start with uh, a case to really kind of help bring things together. And so we have a case from uh, Cash Lat Children's Hospital. Uh, we have Theo. Theo is – he's a two-month-old boy former 35 weaker, and he came in with cough, four days of some nasal congestion, and, and some fast breathing. Mom's concerned because he's sucking in from his stomach, he's drinking less, only three wet diapers in the past 24 hours. In the ED on exam, he's febrile to 101.2, uh, he has a respiratory rate in the 60s, and he does have some nasal flaring and subcostal retractions. His oxygen stat is right around 80%, 86%, and you hear some scattered wheezes and diffusely coarse breath sounds. So in this kind of clinical picture, uh, what does this sound like to you? Uh, Tell me a little bit about what your thought process is in seeing a patient like this.
1: So I think as medical students, if I can just back out like from the 1,000, 10,000-foot view, as medical students, we're sort of taught to see a patient like this and formulate a differential diagnosis. And I think what a lot of the evidence is in the literature is telling us right now is that instead of thinking about the differential diagnosis with a patient like this, we should literally just presume bronchiolitis. The reason for this is complex, but it has to do with the fact uh, that if we worry about a broad differential diagnosis, we start doing things like over-testing and over-treatment, which down the road can actually cause harm. So... The the more modern thinking about a case like this is, presume it's bronchiolitis, treat it as such, and then you know maybe in a day or so, or in two days, or if the kid gets critically ill, then bust open your differential diagnosis and start thinking about what it might be or what it might not be. So just hearing that story, it sounds simplistic, but it's really to prevent overdiagnosis and overtreatment. I'm going to hear that patient say, "Yep, bronchiolitis," but in my heart, I'm going to be saying, but down the road, I might change my mind.
3: So say I'm the parent of this, um, this two month old boy in the, you know, the hospital or the emergency department. And you tell me you you say bronchiolitis, what, how do you describe it to a parent? What bronchiolitis is to them?
1: Yeah, you've, you've hit on a truism in that. I think a lot of people have a lot of uh, misconceptions about disease and it's important to be super clear with families. When I'm talking to parents, I I usually am very clear about what I think the pathophysiology is, and I try to avoid a lot of the lingo that we typically use with families. So I would say your child has a viral infection, and that virus is present not only in nose where you see this runny nose and mucus coming out, but that mucus is also going on inside your child's lungs and in the small areas of the lungs, which is why this baby is having difficulty breathing. And I'll probably just leave it at that, and then we'll start talking about uh, options for how this child will get better. Um, we have to remember that the, the parents are universally terrified, and the outcome is uh, virtually universally good.
3: So you, know, you say that, but then they hear the word bronchiolitis either from like, the resident or the nurse or something like that, and they're like, oh, you know, my, my grandfather had bronchitis in the hospital, or I had a recent bronchitis. Is this the same thing? You know it
1: can be the same thing because certainly bronchitis can be caused by a virus, but in older people, bronchitis is often caused by bacteria as well. In infants, this is almost universally a virus, and the reason why that's important is viruses don't respond to antibiotics. That's how I would answer it, I guess.
0: And let's say let's say I'm the intern or the medical student first seeing this patient, uh, and I might be a little concerned. You know, his oxygen level is low; it's eighty-six percent. He's He's wheezing. He's febrile. He's he's tachypnic. A lot of these things, are things we're taught, are pretty worrisome. Are there are these red flag symptoms? Are these things that are risk for severe disease? What should I be looking for? What am I what am I concerned about?
1: Yeah, Justin, I think you're hitting on an area which I think is broadly misconceived by not only medical students and residents, but by even attendings out there. And it has to do with oxygen. And I I guess I want to spend a little bit of time on oxygen, if that's okay because I think that understanding the role of hypoxemia is important. We have to remember uh, a few things about hypoxemia. The first is in a two month old, or really any infant, hypoxemia is not particularly dangerous. Um, Having a low oxygen level is quite common and we see it in other conditions and don't really worry about it that much. Let me give you an example. If you saw a three year old with large tonsils who had sleep apnea, and you heard your mom brought in a recording of the child and said, yeah, he catches his breath when he's sleeping, you might refer that it, child to an ENT physician or something like that. But you would tolerate periodic desaturations at night in this child for months at a time until he follows up with his ENT doctor. Um, likewise, you can probably tolerate some transient desaturation in infants too the uh, kids don't have uh, atherosclerotic plaques in their hearts, Uh, unlike old people, they can tolerate a fair amount of hypoxemia. Even in this current COVID outbreak, we're seeing patients with pretty significant hypoxemia, and we're sort of learning to tolerate that as a symptom uh, out of respect to uh, their need to ventilate. And that's really where it gets to. Uh, The emergency isn't so much getting the oxygen in, it's uh, the emergency is actually uh, getting the carbon dioxide out. There was uh, there have been a couple of interesting studies that I kind of think are fun. Um, there was one study where they took children uh, from I believe it was the coast of Greece up Mount Everest, and they made it as high as the first base camp. And what they did is they had these children. This is not a lie. Um, wear a pulse ox while they were sleeping. And they noted that the average pulse ox desaturation for these children who lived at sea level while at 1,700 meters, which was the first stay overnight, was 86%. The reason why that's relevant is Colorado is 1,700 meters. If I go on a trip to Colorado with my child, I don't put them on a pulse ox and I don't give them oxygen, and they are desaturating to 86%, which is actually the same number you gave me. So I should be willing to tolerate a certain amount of risk around oxygen. The other thing is children and adults can't sense hypoxemia. So the reason why that's important is that giving this child oxygen will not make this child more comfortable. The concept of oxygen for comfort is a complete myth across all age groups. This was figured out by Henderson, sorry, Hasselbach, not Henderson, in 1911 in Germany where he had these little mice, and he made them hypoxemic. And he was the first person to figure out that mammals do not have the ability to sense hypoxemia. Uh, You can go online and look at YouTube videos of people in hypoxemia chambers, and they desaturate, and they're perfectly happy until they get really low, and then they become sort of dumb and can't put the correct shape block in the box slot. But basically, they don't feel short of breath. So we have to remember that the 86% of this child is probably the least concerning thing that I'm going to do. And sure, I'll give him oxygen, but that's not the emergency. The emergency in this child is looking at his respiratory status. And so you mentioned things like respiratory rate, which is important, work of breathing, which is reflected by retractions. Uh, We have to remember that retractions are a result of non-compliant lung And so if this child is non-compliant lung, he clearly has some mucus in there that's preventing it from expanding and contracting the way it's supposed to. And that can lead to a decline of this child's respiratory status through exhaustion of the respiratory musculature. From a boots on the ground standpoint. I think most experienced pediatric ER doctors and hospitalists and even intensivists also will tell you there's something about the appearance of a child which maybe isn't measurable in respiratory rate and retractions, flaring, or grunting that gives you a hunch about whether the child is in distress. A child who's lying there and just tolerates the IV without flinching is concerning. A child who's looking around the room and playful even if their respiratory rate is high or have a little bit of retractions is probably not as concerning to me.
0: So, so to recap, it sounds like the hypoxia, we're okay with. The hypoxemia is not the biggest red flag. We can tolerate some desaturations, especially in this population, but really the tachypnea and work of breathing is really the big red flag that we wanna keep an eye on for these patients.
1: Yeah, one of our intensivists at our hospital gave me a great line, which I really like and I use, which is 90 to 100 is an A, 80 to 90 is a B, and 70 to 80 is a C, but you're still passing. <laughs> Once you drop below 70, maybe you need to worry about a little bit.
3: That's great, those a great rules of thumb.
0: Yeah, this is great. So let's say we have this patient in front of us and you know the ED attending asks, you're a resident, you're a student, they say, what do you wanna do for this patient? how would you approach the the workup? Should we be getting labs? Should we be getting imaging? Should we be getting a VBG or ABG? Should we uh, be swabbing them, doing an RPP? What kind of of workup or diagnostic um, uh, approach should we be taking in this patient in front of us?
1: Yeah, so Justin, I think that's a really great question. And I think it relates again to that statement I made earlier about holding off for a little bit regarding your differential diagnosis. I would get no tests at all. And let me explain why I would do that, because I think a lot of people are tempted to get things like CBCs, blood gases, chest X-rays, things like that. The first thing I would look at is, say, the CBC. And I think there's a lot of people out there who like to use the white count as a proxy for bacterial versus viral illness. There was a uh, very good study in thorax, Uh, where they looked at the white count and showed whether it was likely to be a viral or bacterial pathogen causing illness in respiratory uh, patients under the age of five. And they showed that the white count was almost exactly 50% sensitive and 50% specific for bacterial versus viral conditions in patients where they knew knew what the cause was. So we know the white count is notoriously horrible, really, for all bacterial infections in children. In adults, works great. In kids, terrible lab. And probably a lot of the reason relates to the fact that several viruses, in particular adenovirus, can cause a very high white count. I read one study in children, adenovirus average white count is 24. So I wouldn't go for the CBC. In terms of the Chem 7, I think you can assess this child's need for hydration and say, look, he had three wet diapers. Let's give him some something to drink. If you're Really worried about significant dehydration. I don't think it's unreasonable to get a sodium, but certainly you should do that in the minority of cases. In terms of a blood culture, I think after two months of age, the utility of the blood culture starts to really get low. And the reason is the false positive rate is actually almost double the true positive rate in terms of bacteremia. Also, by two months of age, I would suggest that the risk of E. coli and other pathogens that come from the birth process are starting to get very low. One possible exception is if a baby is septic, I would certainly get a blood culture. If they're looking very ill, I would think about a blood culture. Certainly in this child who's next 35-weeker, you might have a delayed diagnosis of group B strep. But unless this kid were super sick, I probably would avoid that for fear of a false positive driving unnecessary care down the road. In terms of the chest X-ray, there's really been quite an abundance of data showing that they can cause harm. And let me explain why that is. As we know, antibiotics are associated with a bunch of problems down the road. Antibiotic use in childhood can cause an increased incidence of type one diabetes. It can cause resistant to antibiotics in the future and cause a variety of problems. Of course, antibiotic associated diarrhea, though that's probably my least concerning of of the bunch. Now, If we were to just give antibiotics to everyone, we would quickly end up in a bit of a quagmire in our country in terms of resistant rates and things like that. So we would like to avoid antibiotics. What we found is in children who present with viral symptoms, and this is based out of a couple of different studies, that chest x-rays increase use of antibiotics but do not actually improve outcomes. So there was a notable study that was done, I believe, if I recall correctly, in India. Um, This was a sort of famous study of uh, over 500 children who presented just like this. And what they did is they actually randomized them to whether they got a chest x-ray or not. What they found was when you got a chest x-ray, you did not get better any faster, but you did get increased unnecessary antibiotic use. So the act of getting a chest x-ray will not improve the child's outcome. This was replicated in the U.S. in, I believe, Driscoll, Texas, where they had a really interesting study where they took uh, kids who came into the hospital and they basically made the doctor decide whether he was giving antibiotics or not. And then they were allowed to get a chest x-ray. Hmm. The, the, the ER doctor would then read the x-ray and then decide whether to give antibiotics. But because of the way their hospital system was set up, the radiologist didn't review the x-ray until the next day. So this set up a really good opportunity for us to take a look at what happens real time, and what happened was, is that all of the kids who got antibiotics, the radiologist read the chest X ray as normal. Uh, in the ones where they elected to get a chest X ray, that increased the use of antibiotics, and the only child who was actually reviewed as having a pneumonia, actually didn't end up getting antibiotics, and that child tested positive for RSV and did fine, and it was probably just RSV pneumonia. The caveat being, I'm not saying no chest X-rays at all. I'm suggesting that we should minimize their use, and if you're using them more than maybe 10% or 20% of the time, you're probably overusing them, Um, and you're going to be increasing your antibiotic use for no particular benefit. Um, Certainly, if a kid looks profoundly sick, if the child requires innovation, if you're going to the ICU, I think those are all fine indications for chest x-rays. I think the one we probably really should avoid is the child who's relatively well appearing or is going to the general wards for a little bit of something. Um, Those kids, I would avoid them and then get an x-ray if they deteriorate or if things change and then you can expand your differential right then and there.
3: So I have one question. Um, So this is a little off our outline here, but um, are there any types of other testing that you think may be um, useful in the future that are being investigated right now? Um, I know one, like, especially in the adult world, we were looking at, you know, procalcitonin and things like that, at looking at antibiotic use for adults. Is there anything like that or even procal itself it, that you foresee in the future that might be promising?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um. The data really are in the pneumonia literature, and there is a very good argument that both C-reactive protein and procalcitonin are far and vastly superior to white count for determining uh, distinguishing between bacterial and viral illness. However, um, there is a reasonable cost to those uh, labs, and the receiver-operator curve isn't stellar. Uh, What I mean by that is if you, uh, um, if you look at both the sensitivity and the specificity of the, uh, of the, of the test and set different values, you can't really find a point where you set what is quote unquote normal for pneumonia and have a great sensitivity and specificity for either procalcitonin or CRP. So I think they're adjunctively perhaps helpful in a minority of cases. I would certainly use either one of those before I would look at a white count. Um, But for the majority of patients, there's probably no role for that um, because the majority of these kids are going to be just fine. And if they're deteriorating, then there's time to start antibiotics.
0: In a two-month-old with a fever, if this clinically bronchiolitis patient were one-month-old or 26 days old or 19 days old, what are your thoughts about the fever?
1: Um, What we're asking really is what is your risk tolerance for missing a bacterial infection and how long will you tolerate missing that? Certainly in an infant under one month of age, my inclination personally is to still do what we call the full rule out sepsis, which is urine, blood, and CSF. And the reason is, is that 0.4% of infants under one month of age with fever have meningitis. And that's sort of a risk tolerance that I guess I'm not willing to make. Now, there is one study that tried to look at does an RSV-positive test reduce the likelihood of it being meningitis? And the irony is they recruited thousands of patients to that study, and they were still not able to achieve statistical significance, and that's because you'd need just an enormous study to figure out what the likelihood of having meningitis is in an infant number under one, years, one month of age, and, and I don't think we're ever going to see that study. So there's a little bit of it gets back to sort of your gestalt looking at the child. Is he really that sick? Was that 100.5 or was it 102? Is this child profoundly irritable or not? And it becomes a complex algorithm, but I, which I don't think will ever have the answer. It's actually interesting. The AAP right now is trying to put together a, uh, a guideline for the management of febrile infants, and they are stuck on that very issue, which is whether or not to do an LP in all children under one month of age, and there's some disagreement, I guess, in the group. So that uh, guideline has yet to come out. Um, And it's been stalled for maybe 15 years because they can't solve that simple problem. So I don't know if we'll ever have that answer. Now, as you get older from one to two months, I think it becomes a judgment call, and ideally one where the hospitalist and the ER doctor work together and decide, is this a child where we can put off the LP? I'm really fine with checking urines. Uh, I think the risk is relatively low, and a uh, reasonably high number of these children have urine tract infections. I know there are some doctors out there, um, a, in fact, a good friend of mine who is a national leader in the field of bronchiolitis who believes that most infants with bronchiolitis should not get a urinalysis, and I, I can see that point certainly in kids over two. Um, But under one month of age, I would pretty much get a urine in everybody. The blood culture, I think by the age of two months, I think there's really no role for it unless you think this child has sepsis.
3: What what types of things are we doing in terms of general management? I know we talked a little bit about oxygen. Like if we do start oxygen, are there goals that we do for our sats, like other medications that we're trying, including like steroids? Is albuterol useful? Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. So in terms of oxygen, I don't really have much of a goal because I know this sounds crazy, but I just don't care that much. Now, I'm very aware that the national guidelines for bronchiolitis says that you should use a cutoff of 90%. As the author of that section of the national guidelines, I can say I was full of crud. So um, I I said that because that's where the data seem to go. But the data are not based on clinical outcomes. They're based on the uh, oxygen hemoglobin hemoglobin dissociation curve and really aren't a relevant clinical outcome. The the reality is the vast majority of these kids do fine. I'm just waiting for the study where they use 85%. We have to recognize the limitation of our measurement. Pulse oximeters are notoriously horrid. They are off by upwards of four or five points either way. Um, There was a great study out of Canada where they artificially, without the doctor knowing, lowered the readout of the pulse ox by three points, and there was no difference in outcome in children, but the doctors were much more likely to admit them to the hospital. So there's this fear of hypoxemia, which I don't think necessarily has to be there. That side, what else can we do? Because the oxygen isn't going to really help or or hurt. There's a lot of interest historically in albuterol, and I guess I kind of want to take first, if we can, the big picture of therapy and how we measure whether therapy is beneficial. Is that okay? And then we can talk about individual therapies because we have to be a little bit suspicious about the things we do in bronchiolitis. The reason is this. My favorite study in bronchiolitis was a study where they went into a room, evaluated patients and did a respiratory score, um, and there's a number of different respiratory scores. In this case, it was the RDAI, which is the Respiratory Distress Assessment Index, which is a combination of respiratory symptoms and air entry and wheeze and things like that. And they did a respiratory score, and then they waited a half hour and did another respiratory score. There was literally no intervention in this study. They just did two respiratory scores. And I, this was published, and I was like, why didn't I think of doing this? These guys are geniuses because what they showed was that while the majority of patients had no significant changes in their respiratory status, there were several patients who got dramatically better and several patients who got dramatically worse. I think a little bit of how we respond to patient experience and our interventions on a personal basis as physicians. And I'm reminded of a, uh, an article that came out in one of those weekly city newspapers. I think it was the Phoenix or something. And it was by this guy in the eighties named Cecil Adams, who wrote this article called the straight dope. And somebody wrote in and they said, you know, it's funny. Every time I walk under a street lamp, the street lamp goes off. I think I'm causing the street lamp to go off. And I think there are a lot of people who out there who've had this experience where you're walking a street lamp and it goes off and you say, wow, what did I do now? Of course, Street lamps are designed to go off periodically when they overheat. It's something about the mechanism, and Cecil Adams explains this. The point is is that we are designed as people to look for associations in our personal experience, and our personal experience may be a more profound driver of what we do than reading an article with a randomized controlled trial. The reason why that's important is we have to recognize that all of us will have an experience where we give a child albuterol and they look dramatically better afterwards. And it doesn't take many patients to do that. It takes about 20 patients before you see a dramatic improvement. But the thing is, if you'd measured their respiratory distress before and after doing nothing, one in 20 patients would get better doing nothing. So the problem is, is we sit there and we give these children albuterol and we say, well, that kid worked. I'm going to keep trying this therapy and see how things go. Well, the way to really look at this and see whether a therapy is effective, given bronchiolitis is such a waxing and waning condition. Kid has a booger, he coughs it up, he's better, grows a new booger, he's worse. The way to fix this and look at it is through rigorous study and essentially where you have a control group. You have one group that gets the album or another group that doesn't. That's been done over and over and over and over again. So when we were looking at all the albuterol studies that have ever been written about bronchiolitis, and there were hundreds, there ended up only being about 26 or 29, I forget the exact number, that were actually albuterol versus placebo. A lot of them were like albuterol versus racemic epi, and I'm not sure how useful that is because it was a tacit assumption that inhaled therapy works when they both have a similar mechanism. So... um, of those studies where albuterol versus placebo was done, what was really interesting is in the inpatient setting, there was no difference in any outcome whatsoever. There was no difference in length of stay. There was no difference in hospitalization rate. There was no difference in respiratory status. In the outpatient setting, there was a very, very mild reduction in the severity of illness symptoms, but no, inter- no difference in hospitalization. The problem is, is that all of these studies, there's a suspicion about your ability to truly uh, see if the placebo was blinded. And the reason for that is it's really obvious when you listen to a child before and after albuterol that their heart rate has gone up dramatically. And so the concern as people review these papers is this very mild improvement of albuterol over placebo in the outpatient setting without any other hard thing to look at other than just respiratory symptoms uh, may have been related to a lack of blinding all by itself. So the recommendation of the panel who wrote the guidelines was you really should not use albuterol in any setting. Now they said should not but they did not say must not and the reason for that is there's a recognition that every now and then you might feel differently and I myself I confess I am a nihilist with albuterol I virtually never use it but Last year, I had an 18-month-old who's under two, and I always am suspicious that they don't have asthma under two. This kid was covered with asthma. He'd gotten albuterol in the ER. They swore up down and sideways that it was helping. So I said, okay, I'll continue it. So I don't think it's bad to occasionally use albuterol, but I again, we're getting back to that idea of deferring your di- differential diagnosis. Don't guess it's asthma. Don't use albuterol. If the child's getting worse or not improving the way they should, sure, try some albuterol, see if it helps. But if we launch albuterol to everybody, we're going to create some very irritable babies. Now, a lot of people might say, well, what's the harm of albuterol? Well, the harm of albuterol isn't much, but it feels awful. If anybody out there has asthma and they take six puffs of their albuterol, inhaler, they'll tell you, I feel terrible when I do that. It's awful. And we have to recognize that for maybe one in 500 babies who's getting a little bit of benefit from albuterol, that means we're making 499 babies feel completely crappy while they're short of respiratory, you know, having this respiratory distress. So um, I would advocate for less albuterol in general. In terms of steroids, I feel like there's a little bit more data emphasizing the complete lack of benefit in this case uh, the, uh, the the forest plot, which is sort of a meta-analysis of all the papers is incredibly confident that children or two have no response whatsoever to steroids and steroids do have some harm they can harm growth. I have seen one patient who was getting repeated steroids for repeated viral infections and he was actually falling off his growth curve. So there's some harm there and uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't use steroids at all really in anybody I don't see any benefit in a child under two getting steroids. And certainly there's really never been a study showing benefit. That's not true. There was one study uh, by Alan Sari uh, in the Middle East. Um, he's a really prolific bronchiolitis researcher. He gave children uh, a remarkably high dose of steroids. He gave them 0.6 milligrams per kilo of dexamethasone every day for five days. Um, and in, uh, and children hospitalized with bronchiolitis and they went home an average of nine hours sooner. Uh, and that was statistically significant. Uh, however, um, and this was a small study, and all the rest of the study showed no benefit. And even in that study, the readmission rate was the same in the two groups. And nine hours, it's not really clear to me that's that's worth uh, such a colossal dosing of steroids.
0: So that's awesome. So I think a couple things things as far as recapping for treatment, the hypoxia, we're not super worried about... Um, and actually, one of my favorite sites as an uh, early hospitalist, uh, I don't have that many pearls to share, but one of the ones I really like, there's a study that I think was just very design funny, where they sent these kiddos home with a pulse ox, but the parents couldn't see it, so they just recorded them, and they showed that the you know kids had these persistent DSATs overnight and were clinically stable. There was no association with the admission rates, and then steroids also, not a lot
1: of good evidence. Um, Profound evidence that it's bad. I I don't think there's really any excuse for steroids. That was the only thing in the bronchiolitis guidelines that we said uh, level of recommendation uh, strong and grade A level of evidence. So um, the guidelines committee was uh, universal in agreement that the evidence behind steroids was that it could only be harmful.
3: So what if this kid look is looking like he's just getting worse on the floor? You know, you're, you're like, uh, you know, you, you go on every time, you know, every hour or two seems to be looking worse and worse. Like what, what are the things that we can do on the floor to help try to prevent this kid from needing to go to the ICU or to a higher level of care?
1: Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, and I think I want to back up and look at sort of like the 10,000 foot view for a second. And um, if you look at it, um, we have to recognize that mortality is exceptionally rare. There are occasionally infants who die of bronchiolitis. There was one study uh, using the KIDS database, I believe it was, which showed 50 deaths per year from, R- in RSV, from RSV in uh, children who do not have uh, complex chronic health conditions. So 50 sounds like a lot, uh, and that's a huge database. It's the largest one we have but we have to recognize that 10 million children get RSV every year, which works out to be one in 200,000. One in 200,000 sounds like something I'm not willing to tolerate, but we then have to back up and say, well, an infant's risk of death in a car in one year is one in 10,000. So you're 20 times more likely to die driving in a car than you are to die of bronchiolitis, and yet we're willing to put kids in cars. So we have to at some point tolerate risk. So clearly bronchiolitis is a low-risk condition, and I know there are people out there say, I once saw a child who died of RSV. Maybe. I've never seen that, um, but uh, and I've been at this for 20 years, but um, it's certainly, I've heard it, um, and those children, uh, it's unclear that we could have done something more to help them, um, and uh, they're already on ventilators and doing everything, so we need to be a little bit more calm about things and keep an eye on children. Um, but not get too worried. Now, that aside, checking our nervousness at the door, we go in and we see a child who's sitting there working to breathe, retractions, flaring, grunting, and we're like, this needs to be escalated somehow. There's no medication that will make this child do better. Uh, Certainly, if a child's getting really sick, I will open up my differential diagnosis and maybe get a chest x-ray or a blood gas to see where we stand. Although, I don't often use blood gases over my hunch about a child's physical appearance, but some like to do that. Um, You might get a blood culture, geez, what if it's sepsis? I don't think anybody would blame you for the child who's really sick and looking like they need to be in intensive care. Certainly a chest x-ray isn't unreasonable also because very rarely, I've seen it once, you can get spontaneous pneumothorax with bronchiolitis in addition to the, the pneumonia thing. But all that aside. The first thing I think a lot of people do are thinking about giving positive pressure. And the, the first uh, therapy, that which has sort of swept the country in the last five years, is high flow nasal cannula, which is really just a heated and warmed application of air. To be clear, not oxygen, but air that's blown in the nose. And the idea behind the, the mechanism proposed behind this therapy, which was first started after uh, people sort of lifted it from the NICU, um, is that it would. Um, allow uh, one of four possible mechanisms that have been written in literature. The two most popular ones are that um, it will provide some PEEP, although the amount of PEEP is probably fairly minimal. Uh, There was a study of infants in newborn nurseries where they uh, literally, uh, to volunteer infants, they taped their mouths shut and put a manometer in their mouth and then blew high flow at them. And a high flow of six uh, liters per minute, which isn't all that much, um, Provided a peep of five, which isn't a huge amount of peep, but is some. Um, So that's with their mouths taped shut, though, with their mouths open. It's not really clear how much peep there is, though. There probably is some because they are obligate uh, uh, nose breathers. So, whatever the case may be, um, uh, you provide some peep. The other argument, uh, and there's camps of thought, and I don't really care what the mechanism is, I just care if it works, and we'll get to that in a second. The other proposed mechanism is that. Infants, when they breathe, have very rapid, shallow breathing, and they stack up CO2 in their airway dead space and are actually re-inhaling their CO2, creating a respiratory acidosis. And as we know, acid, not oxygen, is the cause of an infant's desire to breathe harder. Um, So the idea is you're sort of blowing out the airway dead space like one might with a leaf blower and a barrel of leaves. You blow out the leaves, you blow out the CO2, and they don't re-inhale it. Whatever the mechanism... The proposal is that this um, causes children to breathe better. Back to our assessment of whether therapies work. So, if we look really carefully at the literature as opposed to our personal experience, and we have to recognize that in our personal experience, there are some kids who just get better and some kids who just get worse, and some kids, most kids, just stay the same. We've all seen a kid and I have absolutely seen a kid where I put him on the high flow and I said, that made a difference. And I turned it off and he got better and I turned it on and he got worse. I mean, the other way around. And I was like, okay, this is working. I'm gonna give high flow in kingdom. But when we look at this rigorously from a perspective, randomized controlled st- uh, trial perspective, we're not really seeing a huge amount of benefit. The first thing I would mention is dosing of high flow and the next thing i would talk about is whether it's therapeutic so the first is dosing right now in america we have two schools of thought the schools of thought are tightly applied to which hospital you're in as opposed to which individual you are which in of itself is fascinating but there are some hospitals where they give 2 liters per minute per kilogram up to a max of 30 and there's other hospitals where they give 6 or 8 but they won't really go above 8 Which is really interesting, right? So at my hospital right now, there's probably a child with bronchiolitis who's on six liters of high flow, and literally 100 miles away in Springfield, Massachusetts, there's a child on 30 liters of high flow. And the doctors in my hospital think the other doctors are crazy, and the doctors in the other hospital think my hospital is crazy, and literally nobody's crazy. That said, the majority of the world uses two liters per minute. so then we can look at what studies are out there. And the biggest one by far is the one that was published in the New England Journal last year in, in, uh, out of Australia, where they looked at multiple sites of rural sort of uh, community hospitals using high-flow nasocannula in infants with bronchiolitis. And they randomized them to either not being on high-flow, but having high-flow available if they got really sick, and putting them on high-flow. And what they showed is nothing. In other words, the infants had the same length of stay, the same readmission rate. There was literally no difference in any outcome with the exception of one, which was touted. So they did get it published in the New England Journal. Um, And that was infants who weren't on high flow were more likely to be started on high flow, which is logical because infants who are already on high flow can't be started on high flow because they're already on it. So it was really a study about physician behavior, maybe more so than anything else. But what was glaringly obvious was there was no length of stay difference. In our own hospital, uh, one of my colleagues conducted a study of 2,000 patients in our hospital before and after the incident, the uh, the application of high-flow cannula to children on the wards. And what he showed was There was no difference in length of stay, but there was a little bit of a difference in cost because kids on high flow were less likely to be sent to the ICU. You could make the argument that those kids maybe just shouldn't have been sent to the ICU, but that high flow was a way we could sort of influence our own behavior and feel like we'd done something until the child spontaneously recovered. So it really wasn't showing much benefit of high flow. So I guess what I'm saying is high flow is out there, It's extremely commonly used. It's yet to be proven that it's beneficial, uh, which is an amazing thing to say. Many of us have hunches that there's some patients who seem to respond to it. It's pretty harmless. I've been on high flow myself to see how it feels. I turned it up to 30, and I will say I felt like I was stacking air. I felt a little bit like an asthmatic because I was actually blowing full at 30. It, It definitely made me feel weird. But I wasn't in distress, and it wasn't horribly uncomfortable. So I would say that um, judicious use of high flow is probably not bad. Uh, It may stave things off for a bit. Um, but the jury's really out there, and I think many would argue, uh, people are starting to argue anyway, that maybe it's just like our next version of albuterol. And we've done this so many times. We did this with hypertonic saline nibs, if you remember 10 years ago. And then, after tons of people saying, oh, anecdotally, it's working great, and a bunch of small studies, uh, Susan Wu out of LA Children's showed it had made no difference in terms of like to stay in the hospital. Uh, and that was replicated in a, another study in Virginia that I saw and And so people basically started realizing, yeah, this isn't really doing anything. And it be, went by the wayside. And I wouldn't be surprised if, in five years we stop using high flow and we're on to the next thing. I, I have no idea.
0: So if the evidence for high flow doesn't seem to work, and I admit, you know that's a lot of what we're doing for the patients, um, what are we doing for these patients? You know, if I'm in clinic and I have a patient who is borderline respiratory distress, distressed with clear uh, bronchiolitis, When should we admit these kids? What can we do for them? Um, And what what can be helpful uh, in the hospital?
1: Yeah, so to a certain degree, the decision to admit is based on the judgment of the primary care physician or whoever's seeing the patient in the outpatient setting. And it takes into account whether the child is in respiratory distress, which clearly is an admission criteria. How you define that is a little bit of a judgment call. But if you're nervous, probably err on the side of sending them in because. In countries where they don't have developed healthcare systems, bronchiolitis is a cause of mortality. So if you're worried, send them in. It, the other thing which you clearly have to assess is hydration status, and is the child drinking adequately and maintaining adequate urine output? And if the child is making good wet diapers, you're probably okay. Now, in terms of what you can do and how you can counsel families, because I think a lot of practitioners are stuck. Well, I used to tell them use albuterol, and it was a way to sort of help them. What do I tell families? And I've relied more and more on nasal suctioning as a very harmless way of improving outcomes. The evidence isn't awesome, but uh, there is some argument that infants which have frequent nasal suctioning do better in the hospital, whereas infants who have frequent deep suctioning actually maybe do worse. So nasal suctioning is probably a good idea. And this new device is out there. There's actually several different ones, which I would say is a... um, parent activated nasal suctioning device. I don't want to use a trade name, but any of them will work. And it's really kind of disgusting, but you put one end of the tube in your mouth and the other one at the child's nose, you apply some saline to loosen up the boogers and you suck. The mucus doesn't go into the parent's mouth. Uh, The mucus gets usually caught in a little collection chamber and there's usually a filter, but that inhalational power of a parent is far more effective than a little blue bulb. Uh, on a whim, I did a study of four patients where I had two patients get an. Uh, at that time, I used the Nose Frida device, which is a device like I just described. And then the other parents used a blue bulb and actually weighed the mucus. Uh, this is not a publishable study, but I will say vastly more than twice as much mucus was liberated using the Nose Frida. And I was fairly convinced it was an effective thing to do. Um, so I think, what I think we do is we give the parents, get this device and suck out your child's nose at least every few hours and certainly before feeds. And that's something that families can focus on and can really help them feel empowered to get their kid better. Um, and I think it is probably effective.
0: Great. Let's, uh, maybe kind of wind down with a few rapid fire questions. That sound okay. Sure. So rapid fire, hydration, NG tube or IV fluids. What do we do?
1: I think that I prefer NG tubes, but in older kids who are able to rip them out, probably IV. um, I think either is fine. and I think the parents should have some involvement in that decision. Sometimes parents feel strongly one way or the other, and I don't really care all that much.
0: All right. Readmission rates. How do we counsel patients about when they're going home, what to look for, what their likelihood of coming back to the hospital is?
1: The only thing we know about readmission rates is that the distance you live from a hospital determines your readmission. And as far as we can tell, nothing in the hospital makes a difference. This was well studied uh, by Jeff Reese. Uh, so if you live a long way, you're less likely to be admitted because you don't want to drive back.
0: <laughs> All right. My, uh, my kid has bronchiolitis. Is he going to have asthma later on in life?
1: Maybe. Um, <laughs> There are some studies arguing that RSV infection in infancy increases your risk of asthma. It's not clear to me that that's truly a risk. It could be there's some underlying parenchymal thing that means that you're more likely to respond badly to RSV and develop asthma later. So I can't say it's causal, but it's certainly associated. Um, But uh, I don't usually focus on that because the vast majority of kids who get bronchiolitis do not develop asthma in the future. For bronchiolitis, what's the typical age that we would see this condition in? Usually it's kids under two, although absolutely up to four. Uh, it's rarer in the two to four group, but we've all seen it. Um, those kids tend to get a little bit more workup because you're more worried about other things, and that's not unreasonable. Um, but uh, under two, that's pretty much what it is.
0: And I remember uh, learning that it was in part because of intraalveolar connections, like these pores of Kahn and canals of Lambert. Have you guys... Is that a thing that's yeah, also that's why you have round pneumonias?
1: That certainly causes round pneumonias in children. You're completely correct. Uh, it can also probably cause a more diffuse picture because the virus can spread through the lung parenchyma. Although I can't blame the Pores of Khan. I'm not really sure, but it is one theory. I think it's the Pores of Khan. They're the worst.
3: Well, yeah. that's all, only because you wrote a tutorial on bronchiolitis that you use a great Star Trek con gif for that. I remember. That makes perfect sense.
0: That's yeah. how I remember the Pores of Khan. Yeah, yeah
1: the Pores of Khan.
0: For uh what about doing an RPP? Should we be doing a respiratory viral panel on these patients? And as part of that, what viruses do cause bronchiolitis? Is it only RSV?
1: No, of course. There's other viruses and they have different seasons. So human metapneumovirus tends to be a little bit more lingering on uh than there's uh, oh, there's a million. You know, rhinovirus can cause it, uh um bocavirus maybe. Uh, one thing to know is that it's not always seasonal. In Florida, they have 10 months of RSV a year, so and nobody really knows why. So um, but there's a wide variety of respiratory viruses, flu, paraflu, et cetera. The RPP, um, I think it's okay to get it if you promise yourself that if it's positive, you're going to change your management. Um, the fear I have is that a lot of people get it to just reassure themselves, and there is a cost. I and mean, if you think about it, it's 100 bucks for an RPP. You see 6,000 patients a year. That's 600 grand. You could have bought another doctor for that. So think about the use of these uh, tests in terms of overall cost of the healthcare system. But if it's going to change your management, if it's going to help you nudge one way or the other, I'm not going to argue with it.
0: Are you, you didn't pay 600 grand a year. That's an expensive doctor.
1: Uh, not- no, but I figure maybe my health, my <laughs> malpractice insurance it bumps it way Say, up. Renegotiate right. negotiate my contract. I mean, it was a plastic surgeon. It was a
3: plastic surgeon. <laughs> well, are, are we seeing SARS-CoV-2 in this? Yeah, uh, I, for I actually, as well?
1: I think it would be very reasonable right now to, to test for COVID at this point. In all hospitalized patients, because there's so much ramification in terms of the spread of the virus and the impact of it on grandma, um, I think uh, that, that's a that's a very different scenario. So I wouldn't mind getting a COVID test in these kids right now. Uh, down the road, if we have a vaccine, obviously I might not recommend that.
0: Great. So I think let's um, let's wrap it up. So uh, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about what are, what are the main take-home points for our listeners, for students, residents, and attendings who are seeing bronchiolitic patients. What are the big pearls that we can leave them with?
1: I think the biggest pearl is the differential diagnosis comes later. If I had to say one thing and, and, and that reflects a decreased likelihood of getting testing and less therapies in general. I think that's really important. And, uh, the nose Frida is a super help in terms of getting parents focused on something they can do. I think that's a good trick.
0: That's awesome. I think this is really, really great. Uh, I learned a lot. Any other things that you would like to plug or give a shout out to?
1: (laughs) I have to pause and think. Who do I want to give a shout out to, Justin? I want to give a shout out to your podcast. Can I do that? Is that yeah,
0: We Yeah, we, we're happy to promote our own podcast on the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, so,
1: <laughs> I, I, I just say, so yeah, thanks, Justin. You know what? There's a lot going on in medicine, but I think one of the really exciting things that's going on is your podcast. So I'm going to plug Cribsiders. I think it's really cool that you're reaching out in a novel way to bring pediatrics education to America. I think that's awesome stuff.
0: I think it's a great plug. For, for everyone who hasn't heard about it yet, check out The Crib Ciders, Yeah, available on all <laughs> podcast mediums.
3: If they haven't heard an episode by now. Yeah. Wait. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this has been another episode of The Crib Ciders. It's for the kids! Get the show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list, Knowledge Gummies, to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
3: We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer on this episode, Jess Kelly.
0: I've been Justin Lee Burke.
2: This is Jess Kelly. And this has
3: been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night.
0: You've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by the VCU Health Continuing Education. VCU Health is jointly accredited by the ACCME, ACPE, and ANCC to provide continuing education for the entire healthcare team. Check us out at cribsiders for more information and to claim credit after listening to this episode.